We're up to chapter one, Mishnah 13. I want to continue with a little bit of the character sketch of Hillel, a little bit more about his his character, his piety, uh, his personality, his persona, a little bit about this great Jewish, transformative Jewish leader. So just one amazing story about his uh, personal piety brought down the Talmud. The halacha is, the verse tells us that there's a mitzvah to help poor people. How much you need to help them? Whatever they need. So the verse tells us essentially you have to give them whatever they need. You don't even make them wealthy, but you have to give them whatever they need. But also, whatever they need and whatever they're lacking. So what does it mean whatever they're lacking? So the Talmud tells us this means you have to bring them back to whatever they're accustomed to. So what if they're accustomed to have a horse to ride, a carriage to ride? That's how they always used to ride. But now they lost the, the, their finances t- turned south. And now they don't have that. So there's a mitzvah of the Torah because this is now what they're lacking. You have to pay for them to have a horse to ride and even a crier to run before them. It used to be that the rich people would have a crier running in front of them. You got to give them that as well. So the story goes, the Talmud tells us that there was a poor person who used to be wealthy and Hill made sure that he had a horse to ride and a crier to run before him. And it was once that the crier wasn't available. So Hill himself the greatest leader of the time, he himself said, I'm going to be the crier, and he ran three mil, which is about three miles, in front of him announcing this guy, which is, just shows a little bit about his humility and his personal piety. But the very famous stories about his patience and his uh, legendary character. And the story goes uh, that there was two people who had a wager. This is brought down the Talmud. They had a wager. Can you get Hillel to get angry and to get mad and to get upset and to wrinkle him. So they had a bet, they had a wager, 400 gold coins. One guy says, there's no way you'll get Hillel to get angry. Oh, says, oh yeah, watch me. I'll do it. 400 gold coins on a line. So he went uh, to Hillel's neighborhood and it was Friday afternoon, the busiest time of the week. And he starts streaming out in the street. Where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? Who's Hillel? And Hillel's going to take a shower before Shabbos. And so Hillel quickly hears someone calling his name. And he, oh, what, what could it be? Oh, what kind of important question could it be? So he quickly gets and puts on a robe, gets himself dressed, and runs outside. He says, my son, what do you need? What do you need? He's like, ah, I have a very important question to ask. You have a very important question to ask? Ask my son, ask. And he says, well, why are the craniums, the heads, the skulls, of Babylonians, why are they oval? Well, why are they misshapen? Ah, Sahil says, ah, oh, this is a very important question. You know why? Because they don't have skilled midwives. And therefore, the kids are born and their heads are a little bit misshapen. But it's a very important question. Obviously, we see what's happening here. Everyone in the whole world, the whole Jewish world, even the non-Jewish world, as we'll see, they knew who Hill was. Hill was the most famous person maybe in the whole region. This guy was trying to kind of Rankle Hillel and saying, well, who is Hillel? Anyone knows who Hillel is? That's the first thing. And also, he's coming to the most busiest time of the week to ask inane questions. Of course, that's going to make Hillel angry. But Hillel responds with patience and uh, interest to this question. Fine, the guy doesn't give up. He waits a little bit. Hillel's back in the shower. And he goes announcing, where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? So again, Hillel gets dressed up again. And... He comes up to him and says, oh, what, what question do you have now? I, very important question. Ask, my son, ask. Why are the eyes 
of the Tarmudians, certain people, why are they blary? Why do they have blary eyes? So he responds again, mm, this is a very important question. And he tells him, because they live in the sand, and the sun reflects against the sand, which causes their eyes to be blary, and therefore their eyes are blary. Fine. That's, that's all you have to ask. Hillel goes back to the shower. Again, he waits till he's in the shower, and he says, where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? And Hillel comes out. Oh, what's the question? Ah, very important question. Why are the feet of the Africans, why are they wide? He says, oh, very important question. Because they live amongst a lot of waters, and the commentaries explain what he's telling him is that it helps them swim in case they should, it helps prevent them from drowning. So this guy doesn't give up, and he persists, and he tells Hill, I have a lot of very important questions I want to ask, but I'm worried to ask you all these questions, maybe they'll get angry. He says, no, don't worry about it. He sits down next to him. All your questions you possibly have, feel free to ask them. Obviously, he gives up now. He's like, you are Hillel, that they call you the Prince of Israel? He says, yes. He says, if you are such a person, there shouldn't be more people like you. Because of you, I lost the wager. I lost the 400 uh, gold pieces. And he says to him, I'm sorry, but no matter what, it's important for me to never get angry. And you got to pay up to your friend the 400 gold coins. Just an amazing amazing testament of the refined character of the leader of the Jews at the time, uh, Hillel. And with, with someone like this, with such character and such piety and such humility, there's an interesting development that happens in the Jewish world at the time. Someone like Hillel at the helm of the nation, it makes Judaism very popular and there's legions of prospective converts that are thronging to join the nation. You know, at the time, Judaism is a very exotic religion because we have ideas that today are very mainstream, but at the time were very, uh, were very esoteric, were very unusual, were radical, and were appealing to a lot of people. That coupled with the fact that uh, amidst a sea of barbarians, you have a nation led by someone like Hillel, it just creates an interest for all the people to say, okay, let, let, let's take a second look at, at Judaism. So there's an amazing array of stories with Hillel and prospective converts. Some of them are, are more famous than others. So one story tells about someone, a non-Jew, coming to Shammai. So remember, Hillel and Shammai, each one of them, one of them had their own institution. Beis Shammai, Beis Hillel. It's the only time in history where the two Zugos weren't operating in the same facility because the Romans made it very difficult for Jews and for Torah to thrive, and therefore they had to distribute the scholars in various different places. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to convert, you went to one of the greatest rabbis, either to Shammai or to Hillel. So this non-Jew made the poor decision of first going to Shammai and testing the waters. And Shammai was very, he was very strict, and he was very precise, and he was very rigid. And the reason for that is well, there's the benefit to that as well. Like we don't want people to come and make jokes about Torah. You got to take it very seriously. And so this guy comes to to uh, Shammai, and he tells him, "I want uh, I want to know how w- what does Torah consist of." He tells him, "Well, there's the written Torah, and there's the oral Torah." So he says to him, "You know what? I want to convert. However, I only want to accept the written Torah, not the oral Torah." 
Is it a deal? Shamu says, get the heck out of here. Why do we have this, this people come in here and they have their own terms? Get out of here. Kiss them out. So he travels down the block and he goes, he goes to Hillel and he has the same request. How many Torah? What's the Torah? Written Torah. All Torah. I want you to convert me with the understanding that I'm only going to accept the written Torah, not the oral Torah. So he'll converts him. And he says, okay, tomorrow we're going to begin your education. Come to, come back tomorrow. He comes back tomorrow. And he says, okay, well, you got to learn how to, you want to, you want to learn how to read the written Torah, right? You want to learn how to read it. You have to first learn how to read Hebrew. So he makes a big chart and teaches them the Hebrew and the letters, the Aleph, and then the Bays, and the Gimel, and the Dalit, and what sounds they make. Okay, practice, come back tomorrow. So he comes back tomorrow. Did you practice? Good. Okay. Let's let let's review. So you, again, he lists all the letters, but then he says the aleph. He says no. This doesn't make the aleph sound. It makes the base sound. He switches it. Hillel switches it. And the guy's like, wait, wait a minute. What's going on? You you told me yesterday, the opposite. How come you're switching it overnight? So he says, aha. You need to trust me, even to understand how to pronounce the letters. You can't do it without tradition. If you make it up, every everyone makes it up, you'll have you won't be able to read even. So once you see the necessity for the oral Torah, you have to accept the oral Torah, broadly speaking. And the guy is like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And he accepts it. Now, there's an important caveat to the story, because the halacha states uh, that the responsibility of the Jewish court when they have a prospective convert is they have to clarify if the person is sincere and is genuinely interested in joining, or they're not sincere. They want, to, they want to marry someone who's Jewish. They want to get a job in finance or Hollywood. Whatever it is, they want to be Jewish for other reasons. And it's important for the court to, to clarify it, which is why, one of the reasons why, that the law actually states that if a prospective convert comes, the first thing that the court must do is to push him away, him or her away. And the reason for that is to, to determine whether or not they're, they're committed or not. So Hillel, he seems to be converting them willy-nilly. So that seems to fly in conflict with the laws. And, and the answer to the question is that Hill, of course, knew that you have to clarify whether or not they're genuine or not. It just he had a sense and he could tell this person was genuine. It's just a little bit misinformed. And he had a sense that he could redirect them and just tweak it. And he knew how to do it. And we see he actually did it. But this should not be taken as a general rule, oh, the people who do conversions today, they should learn from Hillel and be a little bit easier. No, they are learning from Hillel, and Hillel was more talented than them at determining whether or not the prospective convert is sincere or not. So that's one story of Hillel and the converts. There's another story. Uh, again, this story was usurped by charlatans and taken for them as their own. The, the idea of a golden rule, that was formulated first and foremost by... The Torah, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, love your fellow as yourself, and by Hillel in this famous story. And the story goes that the convert comes to Hillel, potential convert comes to Hillel and says, I, I want to study all of Torah and convert, but I want to do it in a truncated version. Give me the cliff notes. Give me, I want to stand and balance on one leg, and by the time it takes me, I can still balance on one leg, I want all of Torah. Give me the core essence of Torah. So first the guy, again, like the previous story, goes to Shammai. And he tells him, teach me all of Torah on one leg. The guy says, hey, what do you mean? You want to learn all of Torah on one leg? Get out of here. What kind of what kind of uh, joke are you trying to make out of this whole process? He goes to Hillel, and Hillel tells him, 
De'alach sani lechavracha lo sa'avid. That that you despise, don't do to your fellow. That's all of Torah. That's the essence of Torah. Everything else is commentary. Fill in the blanks. Study all the commentary as well. So again, this is the idea of a, gen- of a golden rule, the, the end game, so to speak, of what Torah is supposed to bring us to. This, again, was formulated by Hillel and later on was plagiarized by other nations. And finally, the, the last story of Hillel and the potential converts, somewhat less well-known uh, than the previous one, is about the guy who is traveling and he's walking by the House of Scholarship, and he hears them describing the vestments of the high priest. We know that the high priest has eight special garments that only he wears, and all the regular priests, the regular Kohanim, they have four garments that they wear. But these are mitzvahs that are only limited to the Kohen and the Kohen God of the high priest. So this non-Jew is walking by, and he hears them describing all these beautiful garments. So he's like, I'd love to wear some of that myself. So he, he goes in and he investigates. He says, okay, who wears these beautiful garments? Well, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Okay, he's determined now. He's going to become the high priest. So he goes to Shammai again. And he tells him, I have my, uh, my condition. I want to convert on condition that you'll make me the high priest. Again, Shammai is absolutely horrified by this total humiliation of Torah and its scholars, hits the guy out. Goes down the block and goes to Hillel and Hillel converts him on those same terms. But he says to him, okay, well, you want to be the high priest? You want to be the leader? You want to be the king? You got to know the rules. You can't have someone who doesn't know the rules. So he says, like, you got to learn all of Torah first before we make it, before we nominate you, before we have the grand coronation of you as the high priest. You got to teach, you got to educate you. So he starts learning Starts reading, and he gets to one verse. The verse says, "Vehazar hakarev yumas," and the foreigner that does the sacrifice in the temple, they get put to death. So he's like, he starts investigating. He's like, "Who is this verse set upon? Who is this foreigner that does work in the temple?" And they tell him, even if King David, king of all of Israel, he's a non-Kohen, he's a foreigner. If he, the, the greatest leader the Jewish people maybe I've ever had since Moshe, the, the prototypical king of the Jewish people, King David, if he walks into the temple and does a sacrifice that is limited to the Kohen and the Kohenic family, he gets put to death. So obviously the guy realizes that he's not a candidate. So he says to himself, the Jewish people, they're called sons of God. If they do, if they engage in this uh, practice that they're not allowed to do, they get put to death. Me, who, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a newcomer to this, and, uh, you know, I just joined all the more so that uh, that I'm not a good candidate. But he goes back to Hillel, and he tells him, all the blessings should be on your head, because you brought me under the wings of God, on the wings of the Shechina, and I'm appreciative of it, and now I could put to bed this pipe dream of mine to be the high priest. And that, that's, that's the story ends. But again, it just shows someone like just the character and the, the personal piety, humility, and wisdom of Hillel, one of the great transformative leaders that we've ever seen. And it's interesting because you contrast that. You know, last week we saw about him lauding peace 
and pursuing peace and bring people closer to Torah. And we see that in his behavior. This week in this Mishnah, we see somewhat of a different slant. We think of Hillel as being someone who's just so loving and so, and he was like that. But now in this first Mishnah, we're going to learn about his perspective on Torah study. Because it's important not to make the misconception or to make the miscalculation that Hillel was someone who took Torah study lightly. That is a misnomer that will be dispelled very heavily with his next teaching in Mishnah number 13 of chapter 1. I'll read it, and then we'll go through it one by one. Hu haya Omer. He would, would, would say, again, last week we, we taught the first teaching of Hillel on Pirkei Avos. Now we're going to see the second today. Hu haya Omer. Now this particular Mishnah, there's a little bit of disagreement in the translations, in the interpretations of the Mishnah. I'm going to go with the more common understanding in the commentaries. Nagid Shma. Someone who seeks renown loses his reputation. Udalo Mosif, and he who does not increase his Torah study, Yasef. So Yasef, most common most commentaries explain means will die. Here they translate it as decreases it, but most uh, translate uh, most translations are that he will die. Someone doesn't it in- doesn't increase the Torah study. Udalo Yalif, and someone doesn't study Torah at all, Ketalachayev, he deserves to be killed. And someone who exploits the crown of Torah will fade away. So this shows to us that Hillel is using some very harsh language about people who either don't embrace Torah, don't embrace Torah sufficiently, or use Torah for their own benefit. And he begins with someone who studies Torah in order to bolster their renown and to gain honor and prestige. We study Torah because Torah is what is, is, is our birthright, is our mandate, it's what we need to do to become perfect people. It's something that can be misused, we're told here. Someone who's studying Torah only to further their prestige, to gain more honor, to be a greater Torah style, so other humans will think highly of them. Says Hillel, that's a mistake. That's someone who is misusing Torah, and not only will they not achieve that honor, that they so covet, even the previous renown, the previous stature that they had, they will lose. Which is an interesting idea. Not only won't you achieve what you seek, but you'll actually lose what you already have. That's the first thing he teaches us. Someone who doesn't increase the Torah study, someone who is sufficiently happy with their level of, of knowledge and scholarship that they already have, says Hillel in very harsh terms, they deserve to die. And well, what does this mean? I think it's a, it's a very applicable idea. Torah greatness really has no end. Even Moshe, the greatest man that ever lived, had the greatest understanding of Torah. Unless you're God, you don't have a complete understanding of Torah. And the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. And it's ironic that the kids who finished their our mitzvah studies, they feel like they have had an exhaustive and comprehensive exposure to Torah, they're done. That's quite common. Whereas the people who are the greatest Torah scholars who spend 18 hours a day totally immersed in Torah study, those people realize how much they don't know. And there's an amazing story about Rabbi Akiva. Again, we'll meet him again in the book of the Chapters of the Fathers later on. Rabbi Akiva, he was once in a debate with a great scholar, a great Torah scholar who brought him 300 proofs to his particular position. And Rabbi Kiva deftly and 
consummately swatted away all 300 proofs. And the person was so impressed with Rabbi Akiva, he gave him one of those backhanded compliments, which is a compliment mixed with a barb. He tells him, are you the famous Rabbi Akiva? You're the famous Rabbi Akiva whose name spans from one end of the world to the other end of the world. You reach great heights in Torah, but you're nothing better than a shepherd of livestock. He says, you're so great, but you're really nothing. And Rabbi Akiva responds, he says, actually, you're wrong. I'm no greater than a shepherd of sheep, of smaller animals. Now, even in shepherds, shepherds are not the most prestigious people in the world necessarily, even though some of the great Jewish leaders have been shepherds. But even among shepherds, there's hierarchy. And the shepherd of livestock is more important than the shepherd of sheep, of small animals. So it seems like, if you read the story, it seems like Rabbi Tiva is someone who has humility. He's like, oh, you're nothing? He says, eh, I'm even less than what you think I am. That's, that's how the simple reading of the story is. But on a deeper level, what's actually happening here is we're getting a lesson in what Torah greatness really is. And what Torah, in Torah's, in the Torah's own viewpoint, what is it really about? Torah in its essence, what it's about. We believe the Torah is the mind of God. If God's infinite, the Torah is infinite. Says this individual to Rabbi Tiva, you're great in Torah. He was the greatest Torah leader of his time of the end of the first and the beginning of the second century of the Common Era. He's a student of the student of Hillel. Actually, he's a student of a student of a student of Hillel. Hillel's student is Rabbi Yochum Zakai. His student is Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Yeshua. And their, their student is Rabbi Tiva. And he has an amazing knowledge of Torah. He's able to thwart 300 questions like that. But says to him, this other individual, you are great in Torah, but with respect to what Torah really is, Torah is infinite. And therefore, your knowledge in Torah, compared to what Torah really is, you're nothing more than a shepherd of livestock. And says Rabbi Tiva to him, no, 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 you're wrong. Torah is even greater than what you think it is. And the reason why is because Rabbi Tiva indeed had a deeper understanding of Torah, and therefore he had a deeper understanding of the vastness and infiniteness of Torah. He's not saying an act of humility per se. He's saying you are miscalculating how great Torah really is. My knowledge of Torah compared to what Torah really is, is not like a shepherd of livestock, but rather like a shepherd of small sheep, because Torah is even greater than what you think it is. We're told that the Torah is compared to water. Talmud, for example, says that just like water always pools on the lowest point. So if you have water, you have these flash floods, places where it doesn't rain a lot. If there's a lot of rain, at one point, the rain rushes and all collects down at the lowest topographical level. Says the Talmud that Torah compared to water, just like water always goes to the lowest point, so the Torah always goes to the lowest point. People were humble, like Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest, most humble man that ever lived. Therefore, Torah is able to dwell within him. And the more humble someone is, the more they are a vessel worthy of harboring Torah within them. That's one example the Talmud says of how Torah is compared to water. Another example was given, and the verse actually says, is that Torah is arucha me'eretz midur chavmaniyam. It's broader than the land and deeper than the sea. And the way this was explained by the Chafetz Chaim of blessed memory is that if you were, he doesn't give this example, but this is his, his idea. If you were to go to Venice Beach in California and walk into the Pacific Ocean, and you walk in and you walk up to your ankles, 
and you have the water coming in and you have all the people on the beach looking for uh, lost treasure and you have the boardwalk and it's really nice and really idyllic. But you're in the ocean for the first time. You think, oh my gosh, I could literally walk to Japan. The water's up to my ankles. And of course, that's a fallacy because the deeper you walk into the ocean, the deeper it becomes. And there's times where it's like miles and miles and miles deep. You obviously can't make the walk. But when someone just tiptoes in, they don't realize how deep it is. It's up to their ankles. My goodness, it's not, it's not very deep. It's actually kind of shallow. But the more they walk in, the deeper they progress into this sea of Talmud, a sea of Torah, the deeper they actually discover that it is. And thus, the more you study, the more you realize that there is to study. When someone says, you know what? I've maxed out. I've done it all. What they're actually saying is the Torah is not infinite. They're saying the Torah is not as vast as the land and as deep as the ocean. They are saying, I am stuck here, ankle deep in the ocean of Torah, and I'm refusing to tread further. But in a sense, what they're actually saying is they are questioning the Torah's divinity. Because if the Torah is divine, then it's comparable to God and it's infinite. And thus, what Hillel essentially is telling us here is that it's about the mindset. Someone could be in the first rung of a ladder and they can't be blamed because they just started the journey. But if someone is saying, I'm on the first rung and I'm staying on the first rung, this is, this, is, this is where I'm matching out, then they're actually rejecting what is their mandate and that is to continually be progressing and deepening their understanding and furthering their development in Torah. And thus, he uses very harsh, harsh language. But I think there's a lesson to the language as well. Someone who doesn't advance their Torah study, they should die. Very harsh. But what he's really telling us is, it's again, another lesson. And that is that it's teaching us, number one, what our objective and mandate in life is, but also what is the source of life. We believe, of course, the source of life is God. And when someone connects to God, they're connecting to life. And when someone rejects God, they're rejecting life. But what Hillel is telling us is, is that, of course, that, that Torah is the proxy through which we connect to God. So on the deep level, when someone is connecting to Torah, they're connecting to God and thus to life. And when someone is rejecting Torah, he's not saying we're actually going to kill them. What he's saying is that on the deepest level, on the spiritual level, what they're in effect doing is themselves saying, I don't want life. So thus they're, they're opting to forego life by saying, I don't want Torah. I don't want, I, I reject it. And thus, they, 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 they ought to die because that's what they're in, in effect desirous of. Again, this does, this does show us that Hillel, he's taking Torah very, very seriously. It's not like he's just so sweet and nice and loving and, and understanding of everyone. He's giving a very sharp lesson to the people, especially at a time where Hillel emerges, Torah's under assault, and his mission here is to, again, infuse the nation with the proper understanding of what Torah is. So he tells them, you have to always further your development of Torah. And someone who doesn't study Torah at all, someone who even even refuses to get on the first rung, that's even worse. Not only they should die, they should be killed. Of course, again, this doesn't mean that they literally did it, but he's trying to teach a very strong message to the people. And finally, on the last clause of the Mishnah, someone who uses the crown of Torah for their own personal benefit, they'll disappear. Now, what does that mean? 
this again continues with the same theme to teach us of what Torah really is. Torah is from a different world. Moshe comes and gets the Torah from the heavenly realm and brings it here. But the Torah at its source is still in the heavenly realm. We're still able to study God's Torah. Now, the fact that we're able to do that is, is somewhat of a miracle because that is indicative of the fact that we have an element within us that is spiritual as well. The only reason, the only way we're able to study Torah is because we have a source within us as well from that realm. We have a soul. So we have a soul from the spiritual realm and thus we're able to connect to the Torah which comes from that same spiritual realm. But our body, our physical half, that really has no overlap and no interface with the spiritual world. And thus, to put the two together is a very dangerous mix. You can have a collision between the physical world and the spiritual world without some sort of inferno resulting. And thus, what he's telling us in this last line, someone says, oh, I want the Torah to work for me. I want to use the crown of Torah for myself. So some understand it to mean is like, oh, I want to use the Torah as a tool, as an implement to advance my career or to get wealthy or to advance my physical existence, my physical entity. That's one inter- interpretation. The other interpretation, which is quite similar, is someone who says, I want to use a Torah scholar. I want to have him to do my laundry for me or I want him, I want him to, use, to use him for advancing my agenda of my body, so to speak. Both of them are at the core someone who's saying, I want to use Torah to advance the agenda of my body. And what Hill is telling us, this is a toxic mix because you're taking the spiritual world and you're mixing it not with the spiritual half that exists within us, but with the mundane half that exists within us. And that is a very dangerous proposition because the Torah and the spiritual realm really conflicts with the body's agenda, so to speak, and it's very dangerous for us to demote the Torah to be nothing more than an implement to advance the agenda of our body. And one of the commentaries quotes the verse in uh, in Exodus where God tells Moshe, Ki lo yirani ha'adam v'chai, a man cannot see me and live. Your physical eyeballs cannot connect to the spiritual realm to see God. If you do that, you won't live. You cannot, you cannot survive that experience. Similarly, if you're using Torah to try to advance your physical and material life, you're doing, in effect, the same thing. It's a very dangerous proposition. Again, we see Hillel trying to teach us and to educate us, and to educate the people of his time about the value and the holiness and the necessity of Torah, not just Torah itself, but Torah as a way to advance ourselves and the imperative that we have to not abandon it and to not reject it.